Welcome back, warriors. Tanse Sego Anibuju, Quay Nindeluizi Pampometer, and I am the host of this show, The Warrior Life. This podcast is a show about living the warrior life, a lifestyle that focuses on decolonizing our minds, bodies, and spirits, while at the same time revitalizing our cultures, traditions, and practices. But it is also about asserting, living, and defending our sovereignty all over Turtle Island. Today's show is about how the so-called legalization of cannabis ignores the inherent laws and powers, as well as the constitutionally protected Aboriginal and treaty rights of First Nations in relation to cannabis lawmaking, enforcement, governance, and distribution. For decades, federal and provincial governments, through their local, regional, and national police agencies and court systems, have arrested, charged, and imprisoned thousands of First Nations people for engaging in the cannabis trade. Many had hoped that Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's stated commitment to renewing the relationship with Indigenous peoples and his desire to legalize cannabis would help address the majority of those issues, one of which was being the crisis-level over-incarceration of First Nations. But despite the legalization of cannabis in 2018, Trudeau's Liberal government has not yet seen fit to provide relief for all of the First Nations languishing in prisons for cannabis-related offenses. And this is disappointing on two fronts. The first being that Trudeau has not kept his promise again to Indigenous peoples. And the second is that the first ever female Indigenous Justice Minister, now former Justice Minister Jody Wilson-Raybould, didn't take steps to get Indigenous peoples out of prison. We know that the over-incarceration of Indigenous peoples is a real crisis, one that continues to grow without abatement. Despite being only 5% of the population in Canada, Indigenous peoples represent more than 27% of those in federal prisons, Indigenous women make up a staggering 43%, and Indigenous youth are now over 46% of admissions to youth corrections. But that's on a national level. So those statistics don't really show the whole picture. The provincial incarceration rates, especially in the prairies, are beyond astounding. Provincial prisons can be as high as 80% Indigenous peoples. And the most recent statistic for Indigenous girls in Saskatchewan, that rate is an unbelievable 98%. We also know that more than half of all drug offenses in 2016 were cannabis related. That's 58%. And the majority of those charges were for mere possession. To say that we have a real incarceration crisis is an understatement. But the limited cannabis legalization scheme, which does not substantively address the over-incarceration of First Nations, is yet another broken promise and, in fact, a human rights crisis. While a handful of First Nation businesses have been specifically permitted to engage in this new trade, the majority are under a very real risk of legal sanctions, both as individuals and as First Nations, if they continue to assert their jurisdiction in this area. It is a cruel colonial irony that the very same people who have been imprisoned for their role in the cannabis trade, First Nations people, are now largely prohibited from engaging in the trade unless they go and seek permission from provincial governments. 
Yet neither the federal or provincial governments engaged in nation-to-nation dialogue directly with First Nations over how to best bring federal, provincial, and First Nation laws into harmony in relation to cannabis. And despite the many calls from First Nations for collaboration with governments, they were largely left out of the legislative drafting process and any real good faith government attempt to provide a trilateral path forward. In May 2018, prior to the legalization of cannabis, the Standing Senate Committee on Aboriginal Peoples released a report on Bill C-45, and that was called an Act Respecting Cannabis and to amend the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act, the Criminal Code, and other acts. It noted a real lack of meaningful consultation with Indigenous peoples and recommended that legalization, in fact, be delayed for another year. The Standing Senate Committee recommended that Canada use that year to engage in real negotiations with First Nations about tax collection, revenue sharing on reserves, recognition of the right of First Nations to enact their own legislation, and funding for things like substance abuse, and healing center programs. They further recommended that no less than 20% of all cannabis production licenses be issued to First Nations. This would have provided sufficient time for First Nations to draft their own laws, rules, and regulations where none exist, and develop their own business policies and public safety protocols. While the Ministers of Health and Indigenous Services penned a letter to the Senate claiming that their government, quote, respects the jurisdiction of Indigenous communities, unquote, Justice officials previously clarified in Senate hearings that their position is that First Nations cannot enact bylaws in relation to cannabis on reserve and that provincial laws would would apply. But here is the problem. The federal government can't have it both ways. You can't, on the one hand, say you support and recognize First Nation laws and then say that they, in fact, don't apply. Incredibly, Trudeau has missed yet another opportunity to engage with First Nations on a nation-to-nation basis and decided to forge ahead on cannabis legislation without properly engaging with First Nations or meaningfully considering their inherent Aboriginal and treaty rights to pass their own laws. Instead, the federal government assumes provincial jurisdiction, setting the stage for the legislated exclusion of First Nations and conflict on the ground. This isn't the first time the government of the day has blockaded First Nations from engaging in their own business and trade endeavors to support their communities. Remember, it wasn't that long ago that the Conservative government under former Prime Minister Stephen Harper enacted Bill C-10, an act to amend the criminal code trafficking in contraband tobacco. Under that bill, they created the new offense of trafficking in contraband tobacco and prescribed minimum mandatory sentences for repeat offenders. It was very clear that the bill was intended to target First Nations and their long practice of growing, manufacturing, and trading in tobacco, despite their inherent Aboriginal and treaty rights to do so. The RCMP defined contraband tobacco as product that is primarily manufactured on First Nations reserves. If that doesn't get more First Nation targeted, I don't know what else does. This bill effectively acted as a legal blockade attempting to criminalize First Nations for engaging in their own traditional economies, an economy that wasn't even known to Europeans prior to contact. 
settler governments have long engaged in the colonization of Turtle Island through the theft of First Nations lands and resources, but also through the appropriation of their lucrative trade practices, products, and routes. The criminalization of tobacco trade for First Nations went hand in hand with the transfer of control and benefit of tobacco to settler governments. It looks like Canada is doing the same thing to First Nations with regard to the cannabis trade. While cannabis may or may not have been grown, manufactured, and traded traditionally, like tobacco, there is no doubt that this is the modern evolution of the right to trade, as outlined in so many Supreme Court of Canada cases, like the Vanderpeet Trilogy and the Sapir and Gray cases. First Nations are not limited to economic practices of pre-contact times, nor should their cultures be frozen in time. Yet, this is exactly what seems to be happening with the cannabis trade. In fact, it looks like those that are the first in line to profit from this new legal trade are the very politicians and police officers that once fought so hard to imprison First Nations for trading in tobacco and now cannabis. Those previously engaged in tobacco and drug enforcement have an unfair advantage of knowing all of the confidential intelligence on the drug trade and its key players, as well as where and when to sell the product and to whom. On top of this, former cops have connections all over the country, and that alone is an incredible form of advantage and means of intimidating the so-called competition. This gross injustice is now compounded by the fact that only certain businesses will be granted licenses and that the majority of those licenses do not include First Nations or their businesses. According to the federal government's report to Senate, there were only five Indigenous producers out of the original 105 in Canada, a far cry from the minimum 20% recommended by Senate. As the most impoverished communities in Canada, as the most impoverished communities in Canada, First Nations have incredible social pressures on them to find ways to provide for their communities in a legally and politically hostile context. Federal and provincial governments have created legal blockades around most First Nation traditional economies like hunting, fishing, and gathering. They have literally left First Nations with few economic alternatives. And if Trudeau thinks that First Nations will simply shrug their shoulders and move along to a different economic opportunity, he is sadly mistaken. Many First Nations are invested in this trade and will defend their legal right to do so with or without provincial approval or federal approval. The ability of the police to enforce federal or provincial laws in this regard will be highly suspect given their former colleagues' involvement in the trade. Would the police be upholding the law or protecting the Thin Blue Line's new income stream? That's a clear conflict of interest. All of this pending conflict, and there will be conflict, could have been avoided had Trudeau practiced what he promised and engaged with First Nations on a nation-to-nation -nation basis and respected First Nation rights. It's never too late to act, but with an election just around the corner, it is unlikely that Trudeau will rock the boat for all of those former cops and liberal politicians who now stand to make millions from cannabis with their own businesses. 
What a cruel and bitter colonial irony that is. Thank you all for tuning in to my show. I hope you enjoyed it. It was based on an article that I wrote for the Lawyer's Daily back in January. What I'll do is I'll post it in the description box in case you want to have the actual written version to refer back to. If you like this episode, please consider supporting my podcast by subscribing, liking, and sharing each of the episodes. And make sure to leave me your questions, comments, and suggestions in the comment section. I'm currently hosted on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify. You can also follow me on Instagram as Pam underscore Palmiter as I talk about warrior living. And you can also subscribe to my videos on YouTube where I tackle the difficult political and legal issues facing First Nations today. Till next time, keep living a warrior life. Walalia. <laughs>